0: York, this is Democracy Now! What happened tonight is a huge tragedy and war massacre that cannot be tolerated or allowed to pass without accountability. Tonight, an Israeli airstrike hit Al Ali Hospital in Gaza City. Palestinian officials are accusing Israel of killing over 500 people in an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza City where thousands of civilians had sought refuge. Israel's denied responsibility. As the overall death toll in Gaza tops 3,300, President Biden's in Tel Aviv for an unprecedented wartime visit to show U.S. support for Israel.
1: I want to say to the people of Israel, their courage, their commitment, their bravery is... uh, it's stunning. It's really stunning. I'm proud to be here. Thank
0: you. We'll speak to Columbia Professor Rashid Halliday, as well as Francesca Abanesi, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Plus, we go to Israel to speak with a peace activist whose parents were killed in last week's surprise attack by Hamas that killed over 1,300 Israelis. The sun is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's in Israel hours after Palestinian officials accused Israel of killing at least 500 people at Gaza's Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital in an airstrike. In addition to treating sick and wounded patients, the hospital was acting as a refuge for displaced Gazans fleeing Israel's unrelenting attacks. This is Mohammed Al-Naka, a doctor at Al-Ahli Hospital.
2: There was no warning before the hospital was targeted. There were about 3,000 people who were taking shelter here. While we were working at the hospital and without any warning, around 6.30 p.m., the hospital was targeted by shelling. We didn't know what it was, but we found out what it can do after it targeted children who were cut into pieces.
0: Gaza's health ministry said Israel told the hospital it had sent warning strikes one day before the deadly explosion. The U.N. has called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Amidst international condemnation over the attack, Israel's denied responsibility blaming a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. Israeli officials appeared to have deleted a video posted on social media showing Palestinian rockets being fired after realizing the timestamp on the footage did not match up with a hospital attack. A planned trip to Jordan as part of President Biden's visit to the Middle East was canceled in the wake of the hospital bombing. Biden said he was outraged by the attack, which constitutes a war crime, but sided with Israel as he made remarks alongside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu earlier today.
1: I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you.
0: Many have pointed out that militant groups in Palestine do not have the firepower to level a massive building. Israel has a history of lying about its responsibility in crimes against Palestinian civilians, including the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla last year, which it initially blamed on Palestinians. Israel apologized a year after her death. As Biden meets with Israeli officials, Palestinians condemn U.S. support for Israel's genocide. This is a resident of Khan Yunis in Gaza.
2: To President Biden and his administration, generations will not forget and history will be recorded that it was your administration, your billions of dollars, your support with weapons of mass destruction to the Israeli defense forces, which has caused what is being happening right now in
0: Gaza. On Tuesday, Israeli strikes hit other civilian targets in Gaza, including a U.N. school where thousands were taking refuge. At least 24 U.N. installations have been hit in the past week, killing at least 14 U.N. staffers. Israeli forces have killed at least 3,300 Palestinians over the last 12 days. Around a third of those killed were children. Gazans continue to suffer from a lack of all basic necessities, including water. Turkey said it's in talks with Hamas to release hostages taken by the group in its deadly October 7th attack in Israel that killed over 1,300 Israelis. Meanwhile, Iran has warned of potential preemptive action against Israel as it prepares for a possible ground invasion of Gaza. Israel and Hezbollah, a Lebanese group backed by Iran, have been exchanging fire on the Israel-Lebanon border. Israel is reportedly set to ban Al Jazeera's operations in the country over its coverage of the war. Al Jazeera is one of the few global media networks that has reporters on the ground in Gaza. In related news, the Committee to Protect Journalists said at least 17 media workers have been killed since the start of the war, 13 of them Palestinian, three Israeli and one Lebanese. Here in the United States, Jewish Voice for Peace and other groups are rallying in Washington, D.C. today to demand an immediate ceasefire. Two dozen rabbis are leading prayers and mass civil disobedience. Meanwhile, inside the White House and other government buildings, staffers have shared with reporters the challenges in calling out Israel's crimes against Palestinians. Government employees say they fear possible retaliation for even raising the issue of humanitarian protections or restraining Israel. Six months of war in Sudan have plunged the country into one of the worst humanitarian nightmares in recent history, killing up to 9,000 people and displacing over 5 million. That was a stark warning issued by the United Nations, which said at least 25 million people in Sudan are also in need of urgent humanitarian relief. Humanitarian aid relief has been hindered by violence between the Sudanese army and the Rapid Support Forces since fighting broke out in April. The health care situation is also dire. As many medical facilities and conflict areas have been shuttered, human rights groups have condemned the ongoing targeting and killing of civilians and journalists. The Committee to Protect Journalists is demanding an investigation into the October 10th killing of Sudanese journalist Halima Idris Salim, who died after RSF fighters reportedly ran over her with a vehicle while she covered the conflict in the city of Amdurman. The government of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and opposition leaders have agreed to new rules ahead of next year's presidential election. The move is expected to clear the way for the United States to ease its harsh sanctions on Venezuela, which have wrecked the economy, forcing millions to flee. As part of the agreement, the Venezuelan government will allow all political parties to choose their candidates, grant permission to delegations from the U.N. and the European Union to observe elections and give equal media access to all campaigns." In climate news, the Amazon River has dipped to its lowest levels in over a century amidst a protracted regional drought and wildfires. Sixty of the 62 cities in Brazil's northern Amazonas state have declared a state of emergency as communities struggle to meet their basic needs. It's challenging for the communities because what they don't produce, which is food, is what they need most at the moment, as well as medicines. We've just heard from people in the community about the fear of getting ill, the fear of needing medical care and finding it difficult to travel to the hospital. In the UK, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg was detained by London Police Thursday to protest outside the Energy Intelligence Forum, a major oil and gas industry conference.
1: Behind these closed doors at the oil and money conference, spineless politicians are making deals and compromises with lobbyists from destructive industries, the fossil fuel industry. People all over the world are suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate crisis caused by these industries who we allow to meet with our politicians and have privileged access to.
0: Back in the U.S., in Georgia, a man who was wrongfully imprisoned for 16 years for a crime he didn't commit was killed by police Monday. Leonard Allen Cure, a black man, was driving on a highway in Camden County near the Georgia-Florida state line when a sheriff's deputy pulled him over reportedly for speeding. The officer notified him he'd be arrested before shocking him with a taser at least twice, beating him with a baton, then fatally shooting him. The 53-year-old man was released from a Florida prison in 2020 after he was exonerated for an armed robbery conviction from 2004. Since his release, he often gave inspirational talks to high school students and had plans to go to college. Far-right Ohio member Jim Jordan failed Tuesday to reach the 217-vote threshold needed to become the next House speaker. Twenty of his fellow Republicans voted against him, while 212 Democrats voted for House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Jim Jordan is a close Trump ally, was involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Congress members are again voting today. The House has been without a speaker for two weeks following the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. Meanwhile, a bipartisan move to empower Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry to oversee legislative business is being discussed as a way out of the current quagmire. The Supreme Court reinstated for a second time the Biden administration's regulations on ghost guns, unassembled, unmarked gun kits that can be purchased online. In 2022, the federal government imposed similar regulations on DIY guns to standard guns, including mandating serial numbers and background checks for purchasers. A federal judge in Texas issued a nationwide injunction on the Biden rule, but Tuesday's Supreme Court ruling will allow the regulations to stand while a legal challenge plays out. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials are accusing Israel of killing over 500 people in an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza City, where thousands of civilians had sought refuge. Israel's denied responsibility, claiming the explosion was caused by a failed rocket fired by the militant group Islamic Jihad. Palestinian officials have blasted Israel's claim, pointing out Israeli military had already hit the hospital just days before. This is Dr. Fadel Na'im, head of the orthopedic surgery department at El Ahli Hospital.
3: I will describe what I saw myself. I was in the surgery department and I just finished a surgery and I was about to rest before my next surgery. Suddenly we heard the sound of a huge explosion. In the beginning, we thought it was one of the explosions we hear all the time. We didn't think it was in the hospital. Then people came to the surgery department screaming and yelling, asking us to save them, telling us they were injured and dead people. It was a shock for everyone. The hospital was full of dead people, injured people and body parts people were crying and screaming. We tried to give first aid, but there were more injuries than we could handle with our limited resources at the hospital. Many people were martyred. Some of them were alive. We saw them alive and breathing, but we could not do anything for them. They died in our arms. We saw them.
0: The blast came just hours before President Biden landed in Israel for an unprecedented wartime visit to Israel, where he met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to express U.S. support for Israel. Biden placed the blame for the hospital strike on Palestinians. I
1: was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though It was done
0: by the other team, not not you. Biden said it appears it was done by the other team, not you. Earlier today, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza.
2: For an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to provide sufficient time and space to help realize my two appeals and to ease the epic human suffering we are witnessing too many lives, and the fate of the entire region hang on the balance.
0: On Tuesday night, Democracy Now!'s Messiah Road spoke with Dr. Haman Ola, an internal medicine and nephrology specialist working in Gaza City at the largest hospital, Al-Shifa, which is around five miles away from Al-Ahli Hospital, where over 500 Palestinians died in an airstrike. Dr. Allo said an earlier Israeli airstrike um, had hit Al-Athi Hospital days before Tuesday's devastating blast.
1: This is a Baptist hospital. Am I clear enough? It's a Baptist hospital. It is definitely some, something not related to Islam or to whatever extremist extremist group some people consider. So it is a very old hospital aged more than 100 years so it is uh, situated in a very densely populated area uh it was uh hit uh, the day before uh but patients refugees and staff couldn't simply leave the hospital. So so, so, you're, was, saying,
2: so you're saying that the, the hospital was hit before?
1: Yeah, 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 it was. And then in, when it was finally hit again, the hospital is rising now to more than 800 lives lost. And what if this is going to happen in other hospitals, in bigger hospitals? The massacre is going to be worse. There will be no safer shelter for all patients. Um, As a physician, I'm afraid if I now leave and go to work, my hospital is going to be hit as well. And we have, for example, in terms of dialysis, we have only now five hospitals providing hemodialysis service. What if nurses are afraid of going there? What are what if patients are afraid of going there? What if injured patients, war injured with more related injuries, do not go there? This means not slow. This is even fast death, very rapid death.
0: Dr. Hamam Allo went on to describe. How tens of thousands of civilians have sought refuge at the hospitals in Gaza.
1: In a Shefa Hospital there are almost forty thousand persons uh, in in the outside the hospital buildings. They came looking for safer shelter away from their high risk areas. Those are in addition to the patients now, living in the hospital hallways, wherever you go, no matter what work you go to, there are a lot of people uh, sleeping, kids, women, ladies, elderly patients. Some of them um, are immunosuppressed. They are living in the hospital hallways. So you can barely even walk through the hallway because of people actually living there for more than a week. And you can not just simply ask them to leave so you can walk freely because they have no safer safer shelter and many of those lost their homes now. So this is their new home. So if you could imagine the amount and the magnitude of uh, transmissible diseases and infections, speaking of which, Yesterday, I um, met the first patient with a disease called leptospirosis. This is a, a bad disease that we usually get from poorly hygienic living circumstances transmitted by rodents and uh, sewage water and dirty drinking water. So this disease affects badly our kidneys and liver, the uh, patient is in, in a state of acute renal failure, acute kidney injury. His whole life is threatened. And this is because he was in, in an Omruwa school as a shelter. But those schools are now very busy with very unlivable uh, living uh, circumstances. But he had to be there with his family looking for a safer shelter away from his, his threatened house.
0: That was Dr. Hamam Allo, an internal medicine and nephrology specialist working in Gaza City at Al-Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest. When we come back, we speak to Columbia University professor Rashid Khalidi. Stay with us. Music by Sana Musa. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials are accusing Israel of killing over 500 people in an airstrike on a hospital in Gaza City where thousands of civilians had sought refuge. Israel's denying responsibility, claiming the explosion was caused by a failed rocket fired by the militant group Islamic Jihad. Palestinian officials have blasted Israel's claim, pointing out Israel, uh, the military, had already hit the hospital just days before. As we continue to look at Israel's war on Gaza, we're joined by Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, a renowned Palestinian-American scholar, He's the author of a number of books, including his latest, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Professor Khalidi's new piece for The New York Times is headlined, The U.S. Should Think Twice About Israel's Plans for Gaza. We're going to go to that in just a minute, Rashid, what the U.S. should be thinking about right now. But if you can begin by responding to these developments of the last 24 hours with the explosion um, at Al-Athli Hospital and the significance of this.
3: Well, it's obviously had an enormous significance. It led to the cancellation of a summit uh, that uh, was planned for Amen with President Biden. Um, the Arab participants all pulled out uh, after this atrocity. Um, I think it's also led to increased uh, anger all over the Arab world. Uh, there are demonstrations in at least eight or nine Arab capitals, Um, as a result of this. There there was already rage at American, blanket American support for Israel. And I think this has increased that. Um, I think that it it is uh, very hard to believe, given that Israel has threatened hospitals and schools in the past, and it's hit hospitals and schools in the past, and that the kinds of uh, weapons used by Islamic Jihad and Hamas have, very limited warheads. That this could have nest, could have been, uh, as the Israelis claim, uh, a a misfire. Um, as you as you reported, uh, a piece of video that they put up turns out to, to have been uh, uh, dated from a period after the a- attack on this hospital. In any case, whoever whoever was responsible, um, the uh, the result will be enormous enormous anger at the United States for its support of Israel, as well as a a further increase in this enormous death toll inside Gaza.
0: Um, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, the Palestinian legislator and medical doctor himself, said they actually had, in a very short period of time, a number of uh, explanations of what happened. At first, they didn't say this. They said that Hamas was operating underneath the hospital. Um, then they said they were using Palestinians as human shields, sort of to explain what had happened. Then they came up with this. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we had on Sharif Abdel-Kadus, who, this award-winning documentary, The Killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, um, won the George Polk Award for that, documenting what Israel said about the murder of this Palestinian American journalist um she had uh, they first said she was killed by a Palestinian gunman uh, then right. said evidence was inconclusive then after enormous pressure and multiple investigations by many news outlets and human rights groups they said they likely killed her but not intentional and caught in crossfire something that was disproven by human rights group after forensic architecture study of the whole thing uh, showing right. it was an Israeli sniper, Professor Haileaday.
3: I mean, Israel has an enormously successful public relations machine. It took them, I think, 45 minutes to put out this specific cover story on this one. And it was immediately knocked down, as I think you've already reported, when it turned out that the piece of film that they produced uh, actually uh, dated Forty minutes after the attack on the hospital, the
0: New York Times pointed that out the timestamp, Precis- and then they they actually retracted um, um, their their the video from uh, from X from Twitter.
3: Precisely, precisely. I mean, they they have a, a well oiled uh, machine to manufacture uh, cover stories for everything they do. Uh, they have been warning hospitals that they are targets since before, just after this this attack, the initial attack. Uh, uh, out of Gaza on on the seventh of October uh, they've hit this hospital the other day, as you just reported. Uh, they hit a school today. Um, uh, if you read the uh, uh, Israeli press, you have senior Israeli generals and retired generals talking about places like hospitals and schools as targets because they claim there are Hamas bunkers beneath them um, so it 's hard it 's hard not to accept that this was an Israeli airstrike or an Israeli bombardment. In any any case, uh, I think here perception is reality. Given that Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs at least on the Gaza Strip in the last 11 days, it's very hard to believe uh, that it will be very hard at least for people in the Middle East uh, who know how Israel systematically lies about what it does in military operations to believe that this was anybody else than Israel. And I think that's the important fact to retain. People in Palestine, people in the Arab world, people in everywhere except in the American Western European media media bubble, uh, are going to uh, chalk this up to Israel's attack on Gaza.
0: So talk about um, your piece. The U.S. should think twice about Israel's plans for Gaza. Explain what you see unfolding now and respond to President Biden sitting down with the prime minister Netanyahu today and saying the other team did it, attacking the hospital and go on from there.
3: Well, I mean, the president has bonded the United States to Israel at the hip uh, since very soon after this uh, horrible escalation started. And uh, in so doing, he's made the United States responsible in the eyes of the world for everything. And this is the latest example of that. He's basically read from an Israeli teleprompter, as he seems to do routinely, Uh, uh, when anything relating to the Middle East uh, comes up. It's almost as if his lines are scripted in Tel Aviv uh, at the Israeli Defense Ministry, um, where their disinformation headquarters (laughs) are located. Um, And he uh, has, I think, put the United States in a a position that I I am not entirely sure anybody in his administration realizes. Um, The United States is going to be vilified, not just in the Middle East, as a result of It's unlimited support for Israel. Um, What we are seeing now is only the beginning. Uh, The munitions that are being sent, the aircraft carriers that have been sent to the Eastern Mediterranean, the the huge uh, bill that they're gonna put before Congress uh, for I've seen a figure of a hundred billion dollars is going to cement in people's minds the idea that the United States and Israel are one, which means that whatever happens in Gaza going forward in terms of people being killed innocent civilians being killed, in terms of uh, population being expelled. The, basically, we're talking about ethnic cleansing of northern northern Gaza. And heaven forbid people actually being forced out of Gaza into Egypt, which is still a possibility, even though the Egyptians have resisted. All of these things will be put down, not just to Israel, but to the United States. And I don't think they fully realize, or if they do, they haven't done anything about it, that this is is, is what the president has This is where the president has put the United States, Um, for whatever reason, electoral reasons, his own personal sympathy for Israel. It really doesn't matter. Um, We are now in a situation where the United States, in my view, has put itself in a more precarious position in the Middle East than it has any time since the 1967 war.
0: Talk about what's happening on the northern border, on the Israel-Lebanon border and Hezbollah and the— Back and forth, uh, rocket fire that's going on there, and what this could signify.
3: Well, I mean, the most apocalyptic scenario, which I hope and pray does not come about, will would be a, a full scale war um, on 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 the northern border uh, uh, between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, that has the potential to draw. Many other actors in and and, and, and turn into an even wider war than that, possibly, heaven forbid, uh, involving uh, Syria and and uh, and Iran and and then indeed, perhaps the United States. Um, That would be that would be a real apocalyptic scenario. Um, I have a sense that the United States, Iran and Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, are all reluctant to go too far down that path. Uh, Any one of them might do something that could provoke that kind of escalation. But the real problem is unintended consequences of actions that are out of control. Um, Whatever Israel or Hezbollah or Iran and the United States may want, uh, there may be actions that will precipitate a a rapid escalation. Um, And that would, really I mean, the situation is appalling as it is. It really would be infinitely worse. The devastation of Lebanon that would follow, the the, the involvement of northern North, communities in northern Israel would be devastated as well. Um, but the possibility of that growing even wider um, is is to me terrifying.
0: Talk about who. Biden hears. I mean, on the one hand, you have uh, Jordan canceling the summit. He was going to meet with the king, with the Egyptian president, Sisi, um, and with Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority, who turned around as soon as the bombing happened and said he wouldn't participate. Then Jordan canceled. Now the U.S. is saying they canceled it mutually. Um, But what exactly this means—so the only image is President Biden hugging uh, Israeli President Herzog and the prime minister, Netanyahu, at the airport when he arrived. But even at home, uh, State Department officials afraid to raise the issue of Palestinian deaths. HuffPo had a very interesting piece on thin ice. Some Biden administration staffers feel stifled discussing the horrors in Gaza. And they talk about a call um, made by by, uh, the head—let me see if I can find this— A call with Muslim staffers um, that uh, where they were told to talk about their concerns and they talked about being afraid of being fired, of being blacklisted, if they dared raise the actual concern they have um, about what's happening and what the death toll could be and the position that uh, President Biden is taking right now.
3: We're moving into a McCarthyite era where expression of sympathy for Palestinians is equated with terrorism and maybe met with police state tactics. Students are being visited by the FBI. I'm not in the least surprised that a government is sending the FBI to talk to student activists, is clamping down on its own employees who dare to express humanitarian s- sentiments. Um, you are required now to utter a mantra in which you exclusively talk about Israeli suffering. Uh, And if you do not do that, you are branded and doxed and so on and so forth. Um, That's happening in the academic, in in academia and universities. It's happening in companies. And it's, I am sure, happening within the federal government. I have no information about that. Um, But that is in line with the uh, administration's position, which is that this is a one-sided affair in which on the one side is absolute evil, something which according to administration spokesman is worse than ISIS, Daesh. Um, and with that kind of Manichaean uh, point of view, uh, clearly anyone who expresses any dissent, you know, you are you're, you're supporting absolute evil if you talk about anything but the unlimited suffering of Israelis. Now the suffering of Israelis is unquestionable, but that, that should be the only obsession of the president and his men and women. Um, puts the United States in a position where maybe in the in in sound bubble of the United States, the, West, the so-called Western world, um, it, it's comfortable. But with the rest of the world, that will not wash, uh, including countries that are not particularly supportive of Palestine, countries like India, China, and so forth. Those are countries that, and, and other parts of the world, I think, see things the very, very same way. Um, so I don't know that these people understand the degree to which they're harming our, this country Uh, by this kind of blind, one-sided, Israel-first approach.
0: Let me ask you, Rashid Khalidi, if you were president, if you were President Biden, uh, what would you do right now?
3: (laughs) What would I do right now? I would immediately call for a ceasefire. I would make sure that the hostages were released immediately. Uh, It is unconscionable that they be held. Uh, That would require a negotiation between Israel and Hamas about what the terms for those, that release would be. I would insist on that. It is absolutely urgent those people be gotten out. Those, most of those are innocent civilians, certainly the civilians amongst them, uh, or many of them are innocent civilians. The second thing I would do was, would be to say to Israel, look, there is this Palestine question. It's been the problem for 75 years. If you don't address it, the United States will not be uh, willing to offer unlimited support and addressing it means talking about Palestinian self determination, talking about ending the occupation, talking about rolling back settlements, not limiting the unlimited expansion of settlements. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole set of things, which without which you will never have a resolution of this. And so I would work towards a a, 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 a lasting resolution of a, a, a struggle that's been going on, as I say in the book, for more than a hundred years. Um, instead of yet another band aid, yet another uh, attempt to uh, stabilize a status quo which is massively unfavorable to the Palestinians and which will only lead to more suffering for everybody concerned. That is an idealistic position, perhaps, but I don't think that anybody who has any sense of how this is likely to develop would say anything different, frankly.
0: Rashid Khalidi, we want to thank you for being with us. Edward Said, professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University, author of a number of books, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. We'll link to your New York Times op-ed, The U.S. Should Think Twice About Israel's Plans for Gaza. Coming up, we speak with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Back in 30 seconds. Oh. This is To Mother You by Sinead O'Connor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. He spoke earlier today.
2: Immediately before departing for Beijing, I made two urgent humanitarian appeals to Hamas for the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages, to Israel, to immediately allow unrestricted access of humanitarian aid to respond to the most basic needs of the people of Gaza, the overwhelming majority of whom are women and children. They cannot justify the acts of terror against civilians committed by Hamas on October 7 that I immediately condemned. But those attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Each of my two humanitarian appeals have a value in themselves. They are not bargaining chips. They are simply the right things to do. And I am horrified by the hundreds of people killed at Al-Hahli Hospital this same day in Gaza by a strike that I strongly condemned earlier today. I call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to provide sufficient time and space to help realize my two appeals and to ease the epic human suffering we are witnessing. Too many lives and the fate of the entire region hang on the balance.
0: We're joined right now by Francesca Abanese, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you respond to what's unfolding right now and to the U.N.'s call for a humanitarian ceasefire at this point, after the deaths of some more than 1,300 Israelis, and over 3,300 Palestinians.
4: Good morning, Hemi, and thank you for having me. What we are watching is a a catastrophe of Olympian proportions. It's a humanitarian and political catastrophe. Since the very early hours of this new tragedy unfolding in the occupied Palestinian territory and Israel— I've unequivocally condemned what, uh, Hamas has done. It's targeting of, of innocent civilians. It's taking hostages. And at the same time, in the same breath, I have condemned the response that has been given, um, by, by Israel under the pretense of, uh, under the pretext of self-defense, uh, and brutal. Even unprecedented attacks in terms of intensity against the population, which has suffered in the Gaza Strip alone five major wars over less than 15 years. So I've said, how killing the killing of 3,000 civilians, the bombing of hospitals, schools, crowded markets, the leveling of houses, how can it ever be justified as self defense? And amidst all this, I've said the only reasonable and necessary thing to ask for is an immediate and unconditional ceasefire, which, of course, must be also accompanied by the release of the civilian hostages that uh, Hamas has, has taken. There is no way out without a peaceful solution. And it's important, it's imperative for the international community and the U.S., first and foremost, to take this opportunity to act, to act even-handedly and with wisdom before before we spiral further into abyss, because this is what's going
0: to happen if the situation does not de-escalate. Spiraling into an abyss. Um, Francesca Abeneze, if you could respond first to what happened on October 7th, uh, the surprise uh, Hamas attack that ultimately killed more than 1,300 Israelis. Now, we believe roughly 200 to 250, according to them, um, are— uh, additional people are being held hostage in Gaza. And then, if you can respond to the plans of Israel, repeatedly um, th- uh, what is said is they want to de-Hamasify Gaza and what that means.
4: What has happened since the 7th of October is, uh, is as I said, uncautionable, has taken everyone even long time observers of the situation in uh, Israel occupied Palestinian territory by surprise. There is no way that what Hamas has done cannot be condemned as war crimes and possible crimes against humanity with no prejudice to an investigation that needs to be conducted. And there is already an investigation ongoing being uh, by the commission of inquiry on the occupied Palestinian territory and Israel. As I said, killing civilians and taking civilian hostages cannot be ever justified. Civilian life must be preserved at all times, under all circumstances. And, you know, uh, if we put this in context from a Palestinian perspective, the Palestinians have been under an oppressive regime, a settler colonial regime in the occupied Palestinian territory, which is apartheid by default for decades now. But so while resisting the occupation, resisting this oppression is a legitimate um, goal under international law, it doesn't give blanket license to kill or to target civilians. So resistance has rules as much as uh, um, like the, the, the conduct of the occupied um, occupied power. I mean, Israel has rules. And I cannot think of one rule of international humanitarian law that has not been violated. So this is clear. Now going to Israel's response. Well, there is these, the, the opaqueness of, uh, of uh, declaring, um, wanting Israel, Israel wants to um, uproot, eradicate Hamas from the Gaza Strip. We have to remember that the Gaza Strip has been under an unlawful blockade for 16 years, and it was already on the brink of humanitarian collapse, according to many sources, primarily the United Nations, other international organizations, even even before the 7th of October. And what has happened is an an intensification of this unlawfulness, because the blockade has been further tightened by declaring, uh, by cutting off the Gaza Strip from uh, receiving water, electricity, food, essential medicines, while it was also being bombed, I cannot, I cannot imagine how this can on earth be considered proportionate, proportional. This and and again all this violence, all this brutality unleashed against 2.2 million people, half of whom are children. How can it lead, on the one hand, to the eradication of Hamas? or to the, let's say, the de-escalation of the tension among the Palestinian, the Palestinian people in Gaza. And there is another element here, which you rightly pointed to, um, uh, which is the, the, the intent to, to move out, I mean, to eradicate Hamas, but also to move out Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. As, as I myself denounced, there is a, a risk of ethnic cleansing here. And it wouldn't be the first time. And there are, there is both a declared intent because there have been countless statements by Israeli leaders, um, wanting to push the people of Gaza out into the Sinai. And there is also the practice under the, under the fog of war mass displacement of Palestinians has occurred in 1947-49 when 750,000 Palestinians were displaced, made refugees and never allowed to return. In 1967 when 350,000 Palestinians were displaced, made refugees, many of them anew for the second time and never allowed to return. So what is happening now, it's targeting millions of Palestinians, so it would be the largest instance of ethnic cleansing in the history of this tormented land. And it's not possible that it happens under the watch of the international community.
0: So, if you can talk about the rejection of Um, The U.N. uh, Security Council uh, draft resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution was introduced Monday. Um, It was introduced by Russia, won the support of Gabon, Mozambique, the United Arab Emirates, and China. Six countries abstained. France, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States voted against the ceasefire resolution.
4: Amy, it's not a coincidence that I started this interview by saying, this is a catastrophe of humanitarian and uh, political uh, Olympian proportion. We can see the failure of the United Nations system to ensure peace and security now, because the fact that the UN Security Council has so far been unable to issue a strong condemnation of what's happening, of what has been committed by Hamas and what is being committed by, uh, by Israel. This is, again, symptomatic of a decade-long political failure to resolve a situation that has been transformed into an, a humanitarian emergency, a humanitarian catastrophe, but it remains a political political situation that needs to be resolved in line with international law. And it's upon the United Nations Security Council to do so. As I said, this is a a, a critical time to show compassion and to show solidarity with both the Israelis and the Palestinians and act even-handedly.
0: I wanted to ask you about the news that Israel is set to ban Al Jazeera from reporting uh, uh, in the occupied territories after the attorney general approved the move. According to the Israeli media, the attorney general, um, Gali Baharav Miara and communications minister Shlomo Karhi reached an agreement Tuesday on the wording of emergency regulations to stop Al Jazeera from operating. Francesca Albanese, what does this mean? I mean, here in the United States—and you're not always here, to say the least—but um, in this country, the news we are getting from the corporate media when it comes to the broadcast and cable networks, um, there is almost no one uh, reporting regularly from inside Gaza. Al Jazeera does report on the ground in Gaza, the significance of this.
4: I, I have to say, I learned this now. I hadn't heard of it yet. Um, and uh, it's, it's extremely worrisome because, again, we need we need information. We need information so that, I mean, everyone, the public opinion and all the more political leaders, there have been very few independent voices reporting from Gaza. Uh, let alone after the seventh of October, but Al Jazeera has been an incredible source of uh, of information, so it's it's incredible that this is happening at the same time. What I want to point to is that both Palestinian and Israeli human rights organisations have done an incredible job over the years, and including these days in these tragic hours for both to to report and also put in context. What's, what's happening. So, I do hope that the decision to expel Al Jazeera uh, will be repealed. and uh, this well, will. Well, it, it hasn't happened orders. yet,
0: but they're on the verge, it sounds like. It shouldn't happen. It
4: shouldn't happen. And this is all the more, uh, it makes all the more necessary for the international community, individual member states to prevent this from happening.
0: Well, Francesca Abeneze, we want to thank you so much for being with us, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Thanks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We end today's show in Israel, where we're joined by Maoz Inon, who lost both his parents, Bilha and Yaakov Inon, in the surprise attack by Hamas October 7th that killed over 1,300 people in Israel. Maoz is an Israeli peace activist with the movement Standing Together who's calling for the war to end. His parents lived in a kibbutz, a farming collective just north of the Gaza border. They were 78 and 76 years old. Maoz, our deepest condolences on the loss of your parents.
1: Thank Can you. Eddie. Thank
0: you. Can you talk about your parents and what you are calling for now? Because so often we're hearing the Israeli government use the killing, this mass killing of Israelis—over 1,300 killed, and it's not clear, but between 200 and 250 now held hostage um, in Gaza—as the rationale for a ground invasion and the bombing now of Gaza.
5: I'm uh, I'm overwhelmed with what happened to me and to my family and to my Community and uh, classmates, friends uh, in our community, uh, Israeli communities uh, around Gaza. Nothing prepared me for uh, this moment that I, I will be here speaking with you about uh, my strategy. I wished I was speaking uh, with you about the initiatives I. I uh, uh, the peace and the shared society initiatives I've been uh, taking part in, in the last 20 years. Um, and I, I honestly, I'm overwhelmed with everything that's going on. Um, my parents were uh, uh, loving people, an and amazing couple, uh, really adored and admired by their colleagues, their friends, their community, and of course by us, uh, my uh, five brothers and sisters, and uh, their uh, 11 uh, grandchildren. Uh, they didn't want to harm anyone. They didn't want to fight with anyone. They, we, uh, we have close and very tight relationship. We call it even a, a family relationship with the Bedouin in the Negev. I have many friends, colleagues, partners in Palestine, in Jordan, in Egypt. And what's happening now is just devastating. It's just devastating. And uh, listening to you and your guests, I, I, I was crying again. I was crying again because of the term everyone are using. It's the other side team. It's kind of a blame game. Who started it? Who shoot the missile? How many victims uh, there is for, for from each side and, uh, and, ev- and its just uh, it's shocking and uh, we keep using the st- everyone, including you and your guests, the same terms we are using for the last century, the century of the, this cycle of blood between Israelis and Palestinians, and my cry, my cry is to stop the cycle, to stop the cycle of blood to stop the cycle of war. And, uh, and I'm crying. I was interviewed uh, the other, a few days ago the, to the BBC, and I, I say there that I'm crying not for my parents, I'm crying for those who are going to lose their life in this war. And, and my cries didn't help to, for too many people, hundreds of people. And I'm crying now again with you, And I'm crying to everyone that's watching and listening. We need you to cry with us. Don't blame anyone. Me and my family, we seek no revenge. And we seek no revenge. We just seek peace. We seek for hope. We must, you change the terminology we are using to positive terminology terminology for reconciliation, for recognition, for partnership and for peace. I, I'm crying, and I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. Uh, cry, just wear the awareness, not to blame anyone, just to stop the war, and, and to build a, a, a different future, to, to break this cycle of blood, to, to break this uh, game of blood, and, and to build a new future with hope and hope i i uh, i am i'm not a scholar i'm not a spokes spokesman i'm not a politician i'm a normal people uh, i wo- i am working very hard for my living i'm raising my three beautiful children i'm i'm married to a beautiful beautiful and amazing woman and i never thought something like this might happen to someone like me you hear it maybe in ukraine you hear it in africa you hear it in else in, in, like faraway places and this cas- catastrophe reached reached me. Mao and it's it just yeah.
0: There is a mass
5: very very emotional sorry.
0: And again my condolences to you, to your family. Um, today there's a mass protest plan for Washington DC led by groups like Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, Two dozen rabbis will be part of a civil disobedience, apparently. Um, They are calling for an end to the occupation. Do you feel the same way?
5: I think occupation—of course, but we are in such a risk. And I think now calling for to do these things or the other, we are going back— To the terminology, we are using the same terminology that brought us to this situation. Let's call for peace. Let's call for hope. Let's call uh, for a complete cease of fire. Let's call for building bridges. Of course, I'm against occupation. It's, but it's irrelevant at the moment. There, there might, or I'm afraid, there will be many, many more victims. And what we all should be focusing now is to stop the war. Very simple message. And we, we, we must cry it. We must cry our message to everyone that has a heart uh, uh, that can listen.
0: Let me ask you, Maoz, there are people, uh, Israeli families, in front of uh, the Israeli military headquarters in Tel Aviv, whose families have been taken hostage—either mother, father, daughter, son—and um, they are there saying the same thing. We often see them in the media describing the horror of what happened to their loved ones. But then the media doesn't go on to say what they're calling for. Um, what do you demand right now of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, when you talk about ending I'm, the war?
5: Again, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm calling and I'm, uh, and I'm crying not to Benjamin Netanyahu, not to uh, the leader of the Hamas, not to uh, President Biden. I'm crying for humanity, for the entire humanity for the entire mankind. I'm crying to stop the war. I'm crying for immediate cease of fire. And I'm crying for hope. Hope that will take us from this cycle of blood to a new new and bright future. We must build hope. We must build a future. And this future must be based on equality, on partnership, on peace. And this is what I'm 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 crying for, and it's not to blame this or the other, this person or the other. They are irrelevant anymore. We must uh, we must build a new a new system. We want and to thank I, I, you, might...
0: Mao's, th- so much as the show ends, and our condolences again, Israeli peace activists speaking to us from Benyamina, Israel. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you for joining us.